I'm going to bring you the second Bible reading from 2 Samuel chapter 6, 12 to 23, which is just a continuation of what we read earlier. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls, of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. It would be great to keep your Bible open as we look at this passage. And it is a bigger passage, and I'm going to focus a little more on the second half. Uh, but let me pray as we get into it. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that I might speak faithfully to it. I pray that we might be willing to humble ourselves to hear the things you want to teach us. And I pray that we might know the joy of your presence. Amen. I'm going to start a sentence and I want you to finish it in your head. Okay? So personal exercise, don't need to shout it out. Okay, so here it is. God is... What? Has everyone got something in their head? It's an excellent start. Good. Uh, I think on the extremely negative end of responses, uh, some might say God is a figment of humanity's collective imagination. Uh, marginally less negative, God is distant or absent or arbitrary. Uh, sometimes he gives good things to bad people, sometimes he gives bad things to good people, and then sometimes he swaps it all around and you never quite know which one it's going to be. Uh, on the positive end of responses, God is love. God is father and dad. Uh, God the son is brother and your mate. God the spirit is the one who makes you feel good about life. And God collectively is the one you come to when you want to ask for stuff. I think perhaps what is lost in, in those two more extreme responses is the holiness 
of God and his power and his justice and his righteous anger. And of course, how we perceive God has a huge impact on how we posture ourselves before God. If we think God is love and love means endorsing whatever life choices we make, uh, then we potentially come with a sense of entitlement. Uh, God should love me no matter what I choose to do, and I deserve good things. Uh, But if we see the power and the holiness of God, then I think our response will be very different. And some of that response should be fear. Because really, when it comes to God, I don't have anything of value to bring to the table. You know, I can do some morally good things, but in the bigger sort of context of the universe and my entire life, all of that looks, you know, sort of pretty paltry. And so really, what do I have to bring before a perfect and inconceivably powerful God? But that realisation should also lead to a sense of thankfulness because that same God, uh, who is inconceivably powerful and holy, invites us to come under his protection. You know, I don't like, I'm not devoted to too many shows, but I am quite partial to Ninja Warrior. Okay, I'm just in awe, right, of, of what these people can do physically. I think it's incredible. But, but God doesn't treat us... You know, like kind of Ninja Warrior, where you have to jump through these ridiculous hoops and impossible obstacles to then stand before God at the end. And if we, if we get there and we're worthy, then he'll accept us. Uh, that is not God. Uh, God does all the work for us. He is the one who brings us to the end. And so we need to keep hearing that God is love. But in the words of Proverbs, we also need to hear the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think in this passage, one of the beauties of this passage is it captures both. It captures the depth and the breadth of not just who God is, but how we should respond to him. So last week we read how David becomes king over united Israel and he conquers the city of Jerusalem, which becomes the religious and national centre of Israel's identity. Uh, So God has given Israel the promised land. He has given them a king. But what is absent at the moment in this picture is God's presence. And for Israel, the symbol of God's presence was the ark. It was a very tangible reminder that God was close and intimately involved with his people. But the ark also reminded people of God's holiness. So to dishonour the ark was to dishonour God. And that's sort of exemplified, isn't it, in this tragically awkward moment at the beginning of our reading. So David decides to bring the ark into Jerusalem and he gathers all of these young men and there's this massive celebration and there's, you know, all, all the instruments are going and there's dancing with all their might. And then one of the oxen pulling this ark stumbles for a moment. And this guy, Uzzah, puts out his hand, you know, to, to sort of stop the ark from, you know, perhaps falling off, you know, the cart. And he drops dead. So verse 7, the Lord's anger burns against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there before the ark. 
And so you, you can imagine that the stunned silence of the moment, all of this incredible enthusiasm, and then just this one tragic event. You know, I think from our perspective, we can feel this is a little unfair. You know, why would God punish someone for trying to protect the, the symbol of God's presence? And we don't get a lot of explanation from the passage except that his action was irreverent. Uh, but there are at least two things wrong with this situation. And if you read in another part of the Bible in Chronicles, uh, it gives us a little more insight into perhaps what's going on. Because there it says, It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. And so God has told them how to treat the ark and they've ignored that. I think secondly, Uzzah is either presumptuous at best or arrogant at worst to think that God needs help protecting this ark that somehow he's dependent on his creation to make sure everything is going to be okay. Uh, so the problem isn't that they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. The problem is the way they did it. And so now David is left with this seemingly sort of hopeless situation. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? But then his second attempt is a whole lot more successful. So there's still celebration, uh, but it starts from a position of humility. Uh, so David is dressed in a linen ephod, which is kind of a really basic sort of undergarment type of you know, clothing. And so his, his lack of kingly garments is why his wife, Michal, then turns around and says he's dancing half naked. Uh, but this time he comes with the Levites carrying the ark. And after six steps in their way to Jerusalem, they offer an atoning sacrifice for their sin. So David's asked, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And the answer is humility and sacrifice. And it's the same for us. You know, we can only ever come towards God if we actually recognise that there's a need. Uh, that we humble ourselves and recognise that life isn't in our control, uh, that we don't actually have any right to come before God, and therefore we need help. So we should hear the words of Psalm 139, yeah, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, uh, but we are also sinful. And so there's this great passage in Isaiah when he comes in a vision before the Lord. And this sort of captures his sense of sinfulness. And it should capture our sense of sinfulness. Because he says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I, mean, I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so humility should bring us to the point of acknowledging that we need help. But it also helps us to recognise why Jesus is so significant, uh, why we need Jesus to stand in our place and to atone for our sin. So the idea of atonement is to make something right. Now, often we atone for our sins or our behaviours. You know, if you crash the car, you atone for it by paying the price. Uh, in the context of our sin... Uh, Jesus stands in our place and pays the price for our rebellion. So in the words of 1 Peter, 
For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And that's us. We are the unrighteous. We need Jesus to atone for us. So as we read this passage, it is about recording history and capturing what happened in the life of Israel. Uh, But it also teaches us something about how we approach God. You know, God is love, but we can't take that love for granted. Uh, It'd be even more ridiculous to think that God is somehow in our debt or needs our help. And so we need to have a reverence that adequately recognises our sinfulness and God's holiness. But I'm not sure if we always do. I suspect often, for myself, I suspect for others, that we come before God quite casually. You know, so if I think about how we pray sometimes, there's this familiarity where our words almost sound like you know, we're about to go through the Macca's drive-thru. You know, oh, dear Lord, um, can I have Big Mac and fries and can you help me with the job? Uh, you know, and you know, in one sense, God cares about the detail. I'm not, not saying God doesn't care about the detail. Um, but it's how we approach that detail and how we approach God. Uh, or we approach God or even serving in ministry as if, you know, we're doing God's, God a favour. You know, well, what time, very busy, um, but what time do I have left? And then how might I, I, you know, you can have a little bit of that. Um, it's a very different attitude, isn't it? Uh, Do we see us serving God or God serving us? But when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see at least a glimpse of the privilege of serving God, well, that changes our perspective completely. And that means we really should rejoice. So verse 14, great rejoicing. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. So it's a very similar scene to earlier, but very different attitude. There is a reverence this time, but also an exuberant joy and an obedience. Uh, And you can't help but sort of feel pleasure uh, as you read this passage. I I quite enjoy this passage. You know, you just sort of feel the emotion of the moment. And I I think as Christians, and particularly being Christian for a while, it can be very easy to take God for granted, to lose that sense of joy. You know, we get so busy with our problems and all the, all the details of life that we lose a sense of, of just how God, good God is and the joy of our salvation. And then I think to make matters worse and even more complicated, we, we often get very frustrated at the world around us or even angry at the world around us and where society is going and at the same time perhaps a little envious. Uh, but David in this moment has, has sort of none of that ambivalence. Uh, you know, he sees God for all his goodness. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, I, I suppose it's, it's easy to almost be envious of David at this point, you know, in a good way. You know, I'm not a dancing person at all. Uh, but, you know, I, I love that uninhibited, unbridled passion for God. And then in our account, even better still, the whole day is, is wrapped up with just a tasty date loaf. Yeah, which is just sort of this lovely detail in the story. You know, as God blesses Israel uh, and as God blesses his king, that blessing overflows to the people. Uh, the, the moral of the story isn't that life will always be easy for Israel. It clearly won't be. Uh, but in this moment, 
They, they celebrate God's goodness. At least most people are celebrating in the moment. David's wife, Michal, who's watching from the window, she sees David's behaviour and verse 16, she despises him in her heart. Now, that's pretty strong language. And then a little bit later on, we, we get a bit more of a sense of that, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. You know, Michal looks at David's behaviour and he doesn't, she doesn't see it as something that honours God or commends the kingship of Israel. She sees it as an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment to his position and it's an embarrassment to her. And I think David and her reaction invokes a little bit of a response for us. It certainly does for me about how we are seen by the world around us. You know, we might not be dancing in the streets as Christians, uh, but we've certainly committed ourselves, our time and energy and resources and passion to serving God. And the world looks at that and they think it's ridiculous. Yeah, at worst, it's a waste of time and at best, well, sorry, worst, it is a waste of time, but it's also naive and dangerous. You know, that we are making serious life choices based on a book. And so in the words of Paul, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And the temptation for us as Christians is to pander to that ridicule. Now, for some, that might mean giving up on God altogether. But for others, and perhaps more, more common, is we, we just don't put our head up too far so it can get knocked off. Now, let's just try to blend in with society as best we can. If someone comes and asks us a direct question, that's okay. You know, are you a follower of Jesus? We're up for that one. Uh, but we don't want to put our neck out too far. Uh, but for David, he certainly doesn't want to blend in. Now, his cultural context is very different. But I, I do pray that we have that type of willingness to stand up and stand out and be counted for our commitment to Christ. Uh, and that we are unashamed in how we do that. In the words of Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You know, we have good news, or God has given us good news, for a broken world. You know, on the most fundamental level, uh, that's about salvation from our sin and securing our relationship with God and securing our future. But it's also shaping how we live in the present. You know, it's God's word that guides us to love one another, you know, even love our enemies. It's God's word that calls us to forgive and to seek to be peacemakers. You know, it's God's word that calls us to include others and protect the vulnerable. And when we disagree with one another, then it's God's word that shows us how to love even when we disagree, uh, how to be genuinely tolerant, and how to seek to win people over uh, rather than to coerce them. Uh, but if that positive doesn't inspire us uh, to stand up, then let's also hear what Jesus' words have to say on the negative side, which is, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So let's get back to Mikhail's outrage. 
Yeah, in verse 21, we get this sense from David's reaction that it's not just about the moment, but it's about what's happened to her family. So he says, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. Now, she is the daughter of Saul, but in terms of the kingship of Israel, the line of Saul is over and the line of David has begun. Uh, And even though Michal is David's wife, she will never bear a child and her family line will never continue through her. And so her shame is expressed as anger, but it's also motivated by how it appears to the people. She cares what other people think. She cares what people think about her, what they think about the kingship. Uh, But for David, he cares what people think about God. And so David recognises that his authority, his kingship, is actually a delegated authority. Uh, He is leading God's people. Some academics uh, speculate that David's motive for bringing the ark into Jerusalem was all about consolidating power. And the ark was there to endorse his kingship. But actually, everything we read in the Bible flips that over. It's actually about David submitting to the Lord's kingship. When the ark comes into Jerusalem... It's an acknowledgement that God is king and he serves under God's king. And so he says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Uh, The word that we translate humiliated is probably better translated as humbled. Uh, But it is this wonderful picture, a very rare picture, of where we see power and humility coming together and actually working. Uh, And it's the same principle, really, for us in leadership in our churches. So in the words of 1 Peter 5, uh, leaders are called to be shepherds of God's flock. And shepherds serve at the pleasure of the chief shepherd, Jesus. Uh, So for me as a minister, it's not about me or my glory or my success or making a name for myself. It's about the glory and honour and God and honour for God. And that's true for me, but it's true for anyone in leadership. Uh, Whether you're leading uh, the kids' ministry, parish council, Bible study, we all lead serving for the glory of God. Uh, Because it's easier said than done, isn't it? Because we're so tempted to make it all about ourselves. Uh, We do care what other people think. Uh, It's okay to be respected. It's okay to be successful. The problem comes when that becomes our motivation for doing things. Our motivation should always be, how do we please God, not ourselves, and not man? Uh, You know, there's lots of big themes in this passage. You know, we've looked at our reverence for the holiness of God, the joy of being able to have God present in our lives, uh, our unashamed devotion to God as we stand up and stand out in the world, and humility in the context of power. But out of all of those themes, and there's probably a few more to boot, what's the one that you need to hear today? Out of all of those, pick one that stands out. And whatever it is, then what change needs to happen? You know, so, and it will start with our attitude, won't it? When our attitude shifts, our attitude towards God, our attitude towards other people, that then overflows into how we talk about stuff, that overflows into what action we take. 
But let's pray uh, that God might help us see the things that we need to see within ourselves. Uh, We can point the finger at someone else, that's really easy. But what does God need us to hear for ourselves? Let me pray for that. Dear Lord, help us to hear what we need to hear. Uh, If it's reverence, help us to be reverent. If it is joy, help us to be joyful. If it's confidence to stand up in the world, then we pray that that you might give us that confidence. And if we need to hear humility, then help us to change our attitudes that we might be more like your son who humbled himself and gave his life for us. Amen.